welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. On May 25, 2020, George Floyd was killed by a police officer in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And on April 20th of this year, a jury returned a guilty verdict against Derek Chauvin on three separate felony wrongful death charges, second degree murder, third degree murder, and second degree manslaughter. The trial of this case consumed 10 days of testimony and the jury's verdict was returned after 10 hours of deliberation. As a result, on June 25th, Chauvin was sentenced to serve an active prison sentence of 22 and a half years and has appealed his conviction. The facts presented in the Chauvin prosecution were graphically and ably presented through the heavy use of videotapes, eyewitness and expert testimony. On both sides of the case, the parties were strong and passionate in the presentation of evidence for their clients. At the end of the day, the jury concluded that the evidence of guilt was overwhelming and supported its determination of guilt. On tonight's discussion, we are talking with attorney Jerry Blackwell, one of the lead attorneys for the state in this case. Attorney Blackwell is a native of Kannapolis, North Carolina, and a graduate of the UNC School of Law. Tonight, we're going to discuss the Chauvin verdict, its impact on Minnesota and beyond, and what the future holds for racial justice in this country. At the outset, uh, I just want to, uh, to let you know, uh, Attorney Blackwell, that many of us watched that uh, trial. And, uh, and I have to admit that we were very proud of your representation of the state. And probably more important than that was uh, your ability to satisfy the high expectations which exist for African-American attorneys anytime that they occupy a national stage. What you did was uh, an outstanding job because it allowed African-American attorneys to walk with their heads up because any misstep that you took along the way would have been a negative impact on all of us as attorneys. So we thank you for the outstanding job that you did uh, in representing the state of Minnesota in, uh, in this case. Thank you. So, thank you for being with us. Glad and thank you all for having me on uh, this evening, uh, tonight. All right. Well, let's let's get started this 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 conversation off with how in the world did a country boy like you navigate yourself from Kannapolis, North Carolina, all the way to the windy windy city, the cold ice city of Minneapolis and St. Paul, Minnesota. 
You know, I'm, I'm laughing. I think I should start off telling a story about a dandelion seed and the wind that blew and uh, <laughs> that uh, landed in Minneapolis. Uh, but uh, in uh, November of uh, 1986, when I was at law school in Chapel Hill, I had read an, an article in, uh, I think it was the New York Times, on the Bhopal gas explosion, which was a Union Carbide plant in Bhopal, India, that had exploded and the gas from the plant uh, harmed uh, thousands and thousands of people in Bhopal, India. Uh, the, uh, the government had passed a decree that it would represent all of the victims and then came to the United States to find a law firm to represent the government against Union Carbide. And that law firm happened to be in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So in my uh, third year of law school in 1986, I read the article. I had tons of cover letters and resumes uh, from having applied uh, for jobs all over the place. And, uh, and by the way, where I really wanted to work in law school was at Ferguson, Stein, Watt, Wallace, and Anthony. <laughs> and so I wanted them. They did not want me uh, at the time. And, uh, uh, and so I uh, sent a uh, uh, resume and um, uh, my letter off to this law firm in Minnesota thinking, you know, what's to lose? Uh, at best, I'll get a call back and maybe get to eat well on a recruiting trip and uh, then be back in North Carolina. Well, they, they hired me uh, uh, on the spot. Uh, essentially, after just um, going through several hours of interviews at the end of which we want you to come to work with us and work on the Bopar gas explosion case, uh, which I did for the first several years, thinking I would be back in the southeast uh, after that much time, because after all, it is Minnesota. And, uh, and here, as you saw, some 34 years later, uh, there I was on the, on the TV uh, as a special prosecutor in the uh, prosecution of Derek Chauvin. And, uh, and there's a whole long sort of story about kind of how that evolved. But that's how I got to, to Minnesota, was joining a firm that was then called Robbins L. Larson and Kaplan. Uh, it was a national law firm, of, uh, hundreds of lawyers. And uh, I was one of three lawyers of color uh, in the firm. And, uh, and I did not, did not necessarily think I'd be here long because no lawyer of color had at this firm or virtually any other firm up here lasted more than uh, two years. Um, and so the, the turnover rate was 100% in the three years at all of the law firms up here. And then not just here, it was this way, just about anywhere you go in large law firms in the country back in uh, the, the 80s. Um, so so that, that's how I got to Minnesota. Uh, I, I wasn't at the time thinking I would stay in Minnesota. Uh, I met my wife in Minnesota and at which point then was game over. And uh, uh, she is from here, therefore I am here. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, and that's how that goes. But that's how I got here and why I'm staying here. You know? Okay. Well, I'm, I'm, I'll tell Fergie and uh, Adam uh, that they blew it. Uh, but uh, as uh, fate would have it, you ended up where you needed to be. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, following up with that, uh, you were in private practice. Uh, how did it uh, end up with Keith Ellison uh, selecting you now to uh, join the uh, prosecution team to handle this particular case? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think in, in the attorney general calling me, I think it was a compliment in a in a backhanded kind of way, really. Um, I mean, I, I tend to represent Fortune 500 companies as as a national trial counsel. Um, so, so my practice uh, looks a lot like what I call smoke jumping a lot, but I'm, I'm called into quite a few cases just months out from trial. 
and um, I will take it over in a, in a, in a lead trial counsel role or co-counsel role and we'll uh, parachute in, you know, to try various cases from Honolulu to Sitka, Alaska, to Maine, to South Carolina, to the Valley in Texas and wherever they are. And, uh, and, and these cases of defending uh, companies oftentimes will have, uh, you know, bad histories to contend with, bad witnesses, bad documents. You have difficult facts and you're in difficult jurisdictions. And you have to figure out, even with that, how do you win? Uh, the case, and I'd had some success with it. I think the Attorney General felt that if I uh, was able to help some of these companies win with all of what I just said, uh, then maybe there's something I could do that would help the state <laughs> in the prosecution of Derek Chauvin, a case that would also have some difficulties to overcome. Um, in, in reaching out to me, he knew I was a trial lawyer, and I'd known that the Attorney General, General Ellison, uh, since he was in law school, even though chronologically we're just a year apart. So I've known him a while, and so he knows the nature of my, my practice. Uh, I didn't expect to have a jury-facing role when he called. Um, I thought I would help primarily with crafting the narrative for the case, uh, work on developing themes for the case. Um, if it were uh, what I call a, um, a, um, a, a high school drama, I thought I'd be backstage uh, helping with hemming the curtains and, uh, and the makeup. Uh, but but didn't expect to be out in the front. And it just evolved that in articulating the, the narrative and emphasizing how to approach the themes. Uh, after I'd done that enough, they said, well, that's that. You will present them. And, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and don't get me wrong, if I make one other, say one other thing about that, it was, um, uh, it, it was not without risk. I mean, it was a courageous attorney general to kind of step out this way and do this public-private kind of partnering. I, I don't think it had ever been done in a case like this before. And I told him, you know, listen, you know, if this goes south uh, with the kind of attention and the profile this case has, there is no way in the world that the entire world is not going to blame you for having made the decision to have brought me, a civil practitioner in the case who's never handled a criminal case, uh, to take on a lead role in it. Uh, I mean, there's no, that's inescapable. Don't worry about me. I mean, if it goes south, I'll be vaporized. Poof, you know, done, gone. <laughs> Who was that? Yeah. I said, but but you will uh, have to uh, suffer the slings and, and arrows of the political misfortunes of it. And are you you sure you want to do that? Um, and his response was, you know, I'm putting in uh, the best folks we have uh, kind of at each slot and, and you're it. So, uh, Mr. Tibbs, this is your day. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and, and so in I went. Um, but that, that's how he came to call me. And that's why I, I think he uh, called me because he knew I had a history of, of having to take on tough cases. Yeah. Well, I think it's important that uh, our listeners uh, understand, first of all, that uh, the African-American community in Minnesota is exceedingly small, uh, basically living in uh, Minneapolis and, uh, and St. Paul. Uh, Keith Ellison being the uh, first African-American to serve as the attorney general uh, in that state after serving as the first congressional representative from that uh, state. And you being uh, one of a few African-American attorneys uh, in the uh, state. Can you kind of talk a little bit about the uh, racial atmosphere and the tension that uh, was uh, present in uh, Minneapolis uh, during, uh, after the uh, George Floyd uh, incident and leading up uh, to, uh, to this trial? Well, 
Well, Minnesota is uh, unique, I guess, in a lot of ways because not not you know not only is um, Attorney General Ellison the first African American Attorney General, but uh, Chief Madeira Arredondo was the first African American Chief of Police in in Minneapolis, and both of those things matter. I mean, you you saw the Attorney General here do something that uh, you don't see Attorney Generals do in these kinds of cases, uh, and it was unique, Keith Ellison. You saw the chief of police was African-American, do things you don't often see chiefs of police do in these kinds of cases, and stepping across the blue line and calling out bad policing, as in the best interest of good policing, to call out what doesn't work, uh, what's wrong. And, and I do think uh, that the grounding that each of them had uh, uh, growing up um, as African-Americans mattered in that regard, in terms of just what they brought uh, to the table in terms of conviction, and uh, the passion that they brought to this. Uh, the, the way that this played out in, in Minnesota, you could probably see on your television. I mean, you saw uh, the, uh, the aftermath of the, uh, the George Floyd killing and uh, the initial announcement of what charges would or wouldn't be brought uh, by the then county, uh, the county attorney from uh, Hennepin County that includes Minneapolis and, and representatives from the U.S. Attorney's Office. There was, um, there was a riot. Uh, the third precinct in Minneapolis, the police department was burned down. And when you saw the protesters, you saw them of all uh, shapes, shades, dimensions, sizes. And, and the, the protesters were African-American, but not necessarily, well, not overwhelmingly African-American uh, in, in the protesters uh, of, of the citizens who simply said, we are better than this, uh, humanity is better than this, and a system of justice uh, that will excuse this um, has to be um, attacked uh, by uh, by the people, and uh, and they showed their outrage uh, there. Um, so Minnesota has uh, always, in my view, been this place of contrast because on the one hand uh, you'll see uh, Minnesota listed in all all of the sort of the the wonderful metrics, uh, you know, quality of life, uh, education levels, and so on. On the other hand, uh, Minnesota has always had some of the worst uh, racial disparities in the country, be that uh, criminal justice, um, you know, housing, sex to housing, education, health care. And, and here we call that the Minnesota paradox, um, you know, that, that despite our numbers, you'll have an African-American chief of police, an African-American attorney general. I can be the lead counsel. And then for many years, as an African-American lawyer here in Minnesota, I had the largest Black-owned law firm in the country. Um, headquartered in Minnesota, not North Carolina, not Mississippi, not California, Minnesota. Um, and um, uh, because of such a contrast of things here in, uh, in Minnesota, uh, really. So, so it, it was no doubt a, um, a, a powder keg here. We had already gone through um, the, uh, the, the trial of the death and trial of Philando Castile here. We had, we had dealt with, uh, prior to that, Jamar Clark. There had been any number of young African-American men who had died, uh, been killed in uh, police uh, custody in excessive force cases, um, quite often around traffic stops that uh, just simply escalated into a young black man being killed and dead. And, uh, and the, the people were um, upset about the fact or their concerns that this would be yet another kind of blatant case where there appeared to be brazen behavior by the police officers and that a system of justice was simply excuse it. And, uh, and, and that people had had enough here, people had had enough of that all over the country. 
And uh, not just in this country, I heard from people all over the world um, who were focused and concerned for the same reason, um, that what does the rule of law mean if it has no meaning uh, in a death and a killing as brazen as this one of a black man? All right, this is uh, the Legal Eagle Review. And we're talking uh, this evening to uh, attorney Jerry Blackwell, uh, who was one of the uh, lead attorneys in the uh, Derek Chauvin uh, case that uh, resulted in a guilty verdict in the, uh, the death of uh, George Floyd. Uh, we're going to have to take our break uh, right now. I want you to uh, stay with us as we continue this uh, discussion. We'll be right back. Good evening, this is Caitlin Chesney to present you with this week's Spotlight event. Have you been eager to find ways to support black business? Well, the opportunity has come. The Buy Black Market Black Friday Weekend Special Edition will be held on this Black Friday weekend. Prepare to come buy black with businesses providing you with everything from the perfect present to give for the holidays to finding your future primary care provider to acquiring a property loan. The event will be located at the NC State Fairgrounds, and you can find full details about the event on ubuyblack.com. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us as we uh, continue our conversation with uh, Attorney Jerry Blackwell. Uh, Attorney Blackwell, a uh, native of Kannapolis, uh, North Carolina, a uh, graduate of the uh, UNC uh, School of Law, uh, who uh, abandoned us and went to uh, Minnesota uh, all the way and uh, ended up as one of the lead attorneys in the uh, Derek Chauvin uh, case where he uh, did an outstanding job of uh, presenting the state's case resulting in that, uh, in that, uh, in that conviction. Uh, so we are really proud to have him uh, here uh, with us. Um, you, you, you ended up talking about the, um, the paradox that uh, existed uh, in, or that do it, that exists now uh, in uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul uh, with respect to the uh, racial diversity uh, that's there. Can you take a couple of minutes and talk about, uh, you know, in that regard, the, the jury selection process and how in that kind of uh, environment, you ended up with a really racially diverse jury. And in fact, that would be a miracle to have a kind of jury like that in North Carolina uh, with uh, its, uh, its population. But I was really impressed with the uh, that final composition of the jury and uh, and get your thoughts on exactly how that uh, how that happened and the impact that that had on the case uh, itself. Well, first, I think just in understanding the uh, diversity or relative uh, ethnic demographic representations in Minnesota um, at, at statewide in terms of representation of African Americans. It's not uh, very great. I forget now what the percentage uh, it is, but uh, but but uh, I would say under 12 percent. Um, in Hennepin County, however, where Minneapolis is, is where it's uh, more concentrated. You find more uh, people of color here in what we call the metro. So if you're picking a jury here, 
you're going to necessarily have uh, the most diverse jury you're going to find anywhere in the state. So for starters, um, that's going to be the case. Uh, and as, as you can see uh, in the jury selection process in the trial, we were um, you know, vigorous on our Batson challenges uh, to, uh, to try to um, increase up the, the profile, the awareness, uh, the sensitivity about striking jurors for, or, or because of their, their race or things that might be proxies for simply their race. Um, and uh, to make sure that we ended up with uh, a diverse panel and that to the extent jurors were being struck uh, for things that sounded like their race and nothing more, uh, that, uh, that we wanted to bring that to the court's attention. So at the end of the day, uh, maybe fewer peremptories could be exercised that way to, uh, to, to have uh, jurors of color struck from the jury. Um, you know, the, the rest of it in the questioning, it was, it was a difficult jury to pick in, in the sense that it would not be possible to find jurors who did not know uh, about uh, what happened. It would be difficult to find jurors who hadn't seen it. I mean, George Floyd died in all of our living rooms and, and, uh, and repeatedly as we saw the scenes again and again. I mean, you'd have to be under a rock in Borneo uh, not to have seen and know something about it or conversely, if you had a jury who had never juror who had never heard of it, never seen it, how representative would that person be? That might be a very strange person, <laughs> you know, than what I have on the jury. Uh, that maybe they're in a bunker somewhere with um, with food supplies and rations for a year because uh, they are waiting for Armageddon to come or something. Um, so, so that aspect of it was 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 hard. Uh, you saw both sides uh, in the jury selection trying to make sure that this didn't turn out to be a referendum kind of a case, uh, that uh, whether it's a referendum on Blue Lives Matters, a referendum on policing in general, a referendum on race, a referendum on Black Lives Matter, um, that we sort of did our, I think, best on both sides to find jurors uh, who would be open to deciding the case and willing to decide the case just on the evidence that they heard, uh, at least willing to say that. Um, and there are so many swirling kind of undercurrents of political views and the country itself is so polarized. And a number of those polarizing factors could easily well have been baked into this trial. Um, I mean, right even down to Trumpism, uh, that, that you know, there was an aspect of that even where if a person is sort of buying into what some call Trumpism, they might be inclined uh, to simply oppose any conviction of an officer based on their political views. They're just not gonna do it. So we, we had to try to ferret that out. And the, the defense didn't want a juror um, seated, seated who is going to decide the case on simply disliking or hating the police because they don't like historically what the police have done to African-Americans. And no matter what the evidence, they're just not gonna do it. So this whole notion of baked in nullification, uh, we're both sides trying to avoid that. But uh, when the jury selection process was finished, I mean, we really couldn't have been happier uh, with the, the mix of the, uh, the jurors, um, it was uh, frankly better than we had even anticipated at the outset in terms of just the mix and racial composition of the jurors. And I thought the, the, the more mixed it was, uh, then the better uh, the jury is likely to be uh, for hearing the evidence. Now, Attorney Blackwell, so you mentioned, yeah, everyone had seen it, um, the video, and, and I want to just go back just for a second, can you share your reaction when you saw the video and how 
um, your personal feelings from that play of deciding to, to participate and be part of the prosecution team? Well, my, my reaction uh, to seeing that video um, had everything to do uh, with my decision to be a part of the prosecution team. Um, you know, seeing it, I've been a lawyer for over 30 years. Uh, and, and don't get me wrong. I mean, we, we do our own sort of good as lawyers. Um, we, we start organizations like the Black Lawyers uh, Association to empower Black lawyers to take on issues here or there in the community. Um, but by and large, for me, most of my uh, work in the day-to-day is knowing I serve the families that work in the law firm by keeping it afloat. Uh, and, um, and what I'm doing most days is either preserving the assets of, uh, of companies or using the law to try to enlarge them, right? So, it, it, you know, when I, when I saw that, uh, that video, it just like pierced right through kind of me as a lawyer. And I thought of like a, a Charles Hamilton Houston when he talked about lawyers either being social engineers or your parasites. And, um, and I thought, you know, for, for moments such as this kind of, you know, was I made and what does your law degree mean? If you're not willing to surrender it for the cause of justice, when you see an injustice that is this brazen, uh, just on video, in your face, um, a man pleading for his life, calling on his mother and an officer on top of his body, squeezing the life out of one breath at a time with sunglasses undisturbed on the top of his head and a callous look on his face, as in, I'm, I'll show you, I'll show all of you uh, what I can do uh, because I'm not here to force the law, I am the law. Uh, was was the whole sort of demeanor of this, and there's nothing anyone is going to do to me, um, and uh, it just ran right right through me. I mean, Dred Scott ran right through me at that point. You know, do, do we have any rights uh, that uh, that that are bound to be respected uh, here? Uh, ran right through me, and so my my emotional um, reaction, um, this sort of fire for justice. So it, it was kind of like a, I think it was Jeremiah. You know, with fire shut up in my bones. Um, uh, it, it felt like that. Um, and um, it just felt like that, that anything I can do, uh, I want to do to, to try to help this cause and uh, to help the cause of getting accountability. And as the attorney general who says, I can't call it justice because if there were justice, George Floyd would still be alive. Um, but we can bring some accountability as far as the system goes to this officer. Um, I, I, I first kind of had this, this sense uh, that I want to do something about this, um, that I want to suspend kind of my day-to-day practice because this is something that is beyond the day-to-day. This is existential, I mean, uh, for, for all of us. And, um, and, and you know, count me in. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how I'm going to do it, uh, but I have this fervor to do it. And, and it was in this space, out of the blue, unsolicited, that I just got a call the next week from the attorney general. I mean, it just out of the blue. And when he called, I said yes right away to being a special prosecutor, uh, which was unusual because I hadn't talked to my wife about it. I hadn't talked to, because there's, a, there's obviously implications for her. You take on a case this way, yeah. uh, you know, people will pick up, uh, you know, weapons and go to the steps of the Michigan Capitol uh, with, uh, with weapons in hand over a virus, like they're going to shoot it. Um, no, no question that if, um, uh, if I take on a case this way, there are risks for me and, and for my beloved. Um, but I didn't, I didn't talk to her. I didn't talk to my partners um, about it. Um, 
uh, got up on the on the high diving board, jumped off, and then checked for water a second, right? You know, count me in, I'm in. And uh, never done it before, but that's how much on fire for me I was around it. And uh, and I'm I'm game for doing whatever I can do to help with this. Um, uh, knowing uh, that if if this went south for me, um, professionally it would be pretty ruinous, probably. Uh, the uh, the number of lawyers in the country of color, African American lawyers that represent um, Fortune 500 companies as national counsel, you can probably count them on your fingers. And uh, and for me, I would say one hand. I think that there must be more than that. I just don't know. And so it it's a it that's a tough a tough road to, to, to hope. Uh, and if you get in a case like this, you know, you become a joke, a meme, um, then those clients aren't gonna want me to keep representing them either. Uh, so, so that means, you know, you're, you're done um, or at least you're restarting. So, so it was, um, uh, you know, there were inherent risk in it, but this was something that was just bigger than whatever might be the implications or consequences to me and for me. So I, I took on the, the case uh, with a kind of a spiritual fervor, really. Um, and just that kind of commitment to an understanding that uh, there might be very uh, potentially severe personal consequences. And if there were, then I have lived a good life, but this is worth it. Um, and uh, this is worth it that I'm, I am done uh, with being sort of intimidated by uh, hateful, awful people uh, that want to threaten uh, force and violence while they destroy others, I'm just done with it. And, um, and, and I said, you know, count me in uh, when the attorney general called. Um, and, uh, and it was uh, that, that kind of uh, fervor, that kind of commitment that came from the, I would say from the belly, but from the soul, really, that, that helped me to keep calm even in the midst of the trial itself. Uh, because I felt like uh, this is exactly where I am supposed to be at this moment and at this time. And this is the job I am supposed to do at this moment and at this time. Um, and, uh, and that is what uh, sustained me, that I am, I am where I am supposed to be uh, at this moment. I heard, I heard a call. Thank you so much for sharing that. That was um, really wonderful um, to know. And, and we anticipated this, right? And we could see it, that you had a passion that you um, were uh, being moved by, you know, personal dedication to this mission. But even though it was emotional for you, it was personal to you, being a trial lawyer requires strategy, right? You couldn't go into court and try to make an emotional appeal. That couldn't have been the strategy. Can you talk a little bit about the strategic approach in the type of case that you and your team decided to to forward. Well, you're right in terms of uh, how you convert that passion to advocacy in front of a jury. There's a real art always to the advocacy. And what advocacy you employ depends where you are uh, in terms of what you employ. Uh, if, if uh, for example, I am trying to case uh, in South Carolina or in, uh, in Holmes County, Mississippi, and I'm telling the jury the truth is a, is a is, is verdict is a Latin word that means the truth. And if you're a lover of truth, you got to tell it in season and the jury will say out of season. Amen. You got to tell it when it's an easy truth and when it's a difficult truth. You do that in Minnesota, nobody will finish your sentence. 
they won't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Truth in season and what? I don't know what you're talking about. Because it's a different culture, very different. So Minnesotans are very reserved. Um, they take uh, a great deal, I think, of, um, you know, pride. Um, if, if it's just culturally built in in Minnesota that in times of crisis, uh, they embrace the amount of reserve that you show in times of crisis. Uh, and the, the extent to which you do not emote uh, is what's valued in Minnesota. So if you came up in, in, in Minnesota and you were on fire, you jumped around like a, um, like a Southern minister um, at a good Baptist church on Sunday morning, uh, you do that in front of a Minnesota jury, you got about five seconds before they're looking at like what is happening and then they've tuned you completely out. So you, you cannot do that. Uh, and as I say to people, just remember in Minnesota, they think butter is a spice. So you've got you've got to dial it back, dial it back, dial it back. And, uh, and so I understood putting on a case here that I was going to really be focused on, you know, bringing it down, that, that there is plenty of passion. Uh, there is all of the emotive energy needed in just the video itself. And that, that to, to the, well, overwhelmingly, as the trial lawyer, you just need to get it teed up and, uh, and, and to basically let it do uh, the emotional appeal and the speaking and to make my presentation as factual as I can make it and, uh, and, to, and to simply throw the darts um, so that there's nothing about the presentation that says to the jury that I'm trying to gild it, that I'm trying to add to it, uh, that I'm trying to some ways exploit it or inflame. Um, I just simply want to show it. You can see it for yourself. You can make your own conclusions. You don't need lawyer spin. You don't need lawyer wind up. You can see it for yourself and draw your own conclusions because to me, it was that compelling, frankly. It was, that's the importance of even trying to get it shown in the opening statement it is, to, is to get that out. So the, the approach uh, for the prosecution generally was, was in this vein. Uh, was to to have it uh, you know factually intensive uh, to do uh, as much um, inoculation or as or some pundits call it pre-bottle uh, because you could anticipate what the other side was going to do. Um, it was interesting discussion sometimes in that regard uh, because that there were there were differences of views on the teams at times that were culturally based. When I said, of course, they're going to make an issue out of uh, him being big and scary, and and uh, and it, it always works. Why, why do you think they're not going to do that? Of course, they're going to do that. Well, I don't really know. I said, well, okay, trust me on this. Uh, that that you're going to see that um, in spades, and so let's just kind of count on it. That that uh, the emphasis on uh, the drugs uh, that were. Uh, not just in his system, but even the drugs that were not in his system, which could not have influenced his behavior at all, since they're not in him. You're going to hear about those. Why? There's a reason why you're going to hear about those. Uh, that even when he's uh, restrained, on the ground, can't be resisting, calling out for his mother, and then at some point doesn't even have a pulse, not breathing, he is still viewed as dangerous. Because why? He could be revived, break the handcuffs, rampage the whole city. You know, it's still scary. You know, it reminded you of a horror movie. That's not a human. You know, that's not a human uh, that you're describing. But the fact that you're describing, or he's being characterized, in my view, the gestalt of it in inhuman ways is exactly what I expect. That, that's the trope nature of it. That's not new. 
And, um, and, and so, of course, you expect to hear that. Why? Because it, it works too often. And uh, so you hear that again. And um, so, so in any event, we had those um, uh, spirited discussions within the team that, that translated into the strategy. And, and then what you actually saw in the trial uh, with uh, the pre-buttal uh, sorts of, of things that we put on anticipating what the other side would do, um, as well as uh, the demeanor. Uh, that that you saw throughout the trial. It was not uh, one that was kind of heavy on um, inflammatory rhetoric or the, uh, that sort of thing. If the case were tried in a different part of the country, I may have been different, right? Because the people there are different. Uh, but but this to me is what what would have to would need to happen in Minnesota. All right, you're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour with attorney Jerry Blackwell, native North Carolinian, and who was one of the lead prosecutors in the Derek Chauvin trial for the murder of George Floyd. We're gonna have to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. We hope you stay with us. Good evening. My name is Caitlin Chesney, and I'm here to present you with a little more insight regarding the Derek Chauvin trial and attorney Jerry Blackwell's involvement. After practicing civil litigation in Minnesota for 30 years, he was asked to be a special prosecutor on the case by the Minnesota Attorney General, which was unusual due to the criminal nature of the case. He was originally tasked with being a behind-the-scenes player, but was ultimately moved to the front stage. The main reasoning for this move was because of his idea to shift from the regular practice of prosecutors referred to as the spark of life method. This method is used at the beginning of trials to humanize victims. However, Attorney Blackwell had the brilliant idea of shifting the focus to the infamous 9 minutes and 29 second video illustrating George Floyd's murder. This idea landed him the task of presenting the opening and closing statements for the trial. Attorney Blackwell's ability to be personable proved to be very useful when working with younger witnesses and being able to relate complex medical terms to the jury. Because of Attorney Blackwell's stellar career and reputation for being a masterful trial lawyer, he was able to greatly impact the case. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review where we are continuing our uh, conversation with Attorney Jerry Blackwell. Uh, about uh, his uh, experience with the uh, Derek Chauvin uh, trial as one of the uh, lead uh, prosecutors uh, in that uh, in that case. When we ended up, you were talking about some of the dynamics of the trial. Um, let me, you know, one one of the things that, uh, that 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 intrigued me was the decisions that uh, that you made to present the two young ladies, two young girls as uh, witnesses. Uh, one was, I think, 16-year-old, and the other was nine, uh, I believe. Um, and, and, and that's always a difficult decision to make to use uh, children witnesses. Can you talk about uh, what went into your thinking and consideration when you made the decision to, to do that, and then what preparation did you have to do in order to uh, prepare them for trial? 
you know, it, it was uh, a difficult decision, um, especially uh, around the uh, the nine-year-old was uh, particularly difficult. Uh, and we went back and forth uh, on it. Um, we thought about the nine-year-old that if you put her on and it's obvious that the weight and the pressure of the moment is too much for a child at that age and it backfires on the prosecution potential to, to do that. On the other hand, the, there are certain uh, transcendent fundamental truths about what had happened to George Floyd. And we thought from the mouths of babes that, that, that even the most junior, um, you know, still in school, still in elementary school, you don't need police training. You don't need fancy experts with PhDs. You don't need to understand police protocols. You just need to have a fundamental basic humanity that, that it, it's so simple, as I said in the closing, that even a child could understand. In fact, the child did understand. Get off of him, right? So, so this was, you know, we, we felt that the, the bystanders were characterized as an unruly mob, and, and you heard that. And, and there were all kinds of unspoken parentheticals about the nature of this mob, right? Um, that uh, given the neighborhood it's in, uh, this good officer is just trying to do his job and he's surrounded by this threatening, intimidating, ominous, unruly mob. And, uh, and, and uh, we felt that we had to, uh, given this uh, broad brush uh, painting of all of them as simply uh, uncooperative, uh, potentially violent, dangerous elements, uh, that we had to show the humanity. And, and to me, what uh, better showing of humanity is there ever uh, than uh, the presentation of a child? Um, and that you had even the child's kind of sensibilities uh, there. The, the nine-year-old is the one who said, you know, we, somebody should call the police on the police, uh, said the, uh, the nine-year-old. Mm -hmm. and, um, um, and, and it was, it was Darnella Frazier um, who had uh, taken initial video uh, of the video of, of the, the police officer, of Mr. Chauvin, the video that went viral. And that took a lot of courage. It just so happens that the, that the bulk of the original bystanders who were there were teenagers. They, they were uh, under the age of 18. And they could have just walked away. They could have just moved on. Uh, they didn't know George Floyd. Um, they could certainly see that something uh, potentially deadly was happening at the scene. And they didn't just sort of move on uh, as if I've got better things to do and my life is difficult enough. I don't need to be bothered. They stopped and got involved. We're willing to get into uh, good trouble, um, uh, so to speak. And she took out a camera. Um, she tried to protect her little cousin, who was a little nine-year-old, by taking her into the store, cup foods, taking her there. And then Darnell was going to come back and do the video. And But then eventually the cousin came out too. So we decided... Uh, to put them on because what a better way to be able to show the, the basic humanity. Talk about this threatening mob. A nine-year-old little girl with love written on her sweatshirt is threatening. Um, you know, a teenager with a video camera is threatening. Once you meet the bystanders, not only could you see they were anything other than threatening. Threatening to whom? An officer who's got everything. You've got the badge, you've got the gun, you've got the mace, you've got the backup. You've got every bit of authority and power there is. Uh, against children, basically, unarmed um, and uh, armed, should I say, only with human decency, you know, get off of him, stop, quit, you're killing him. Um, 
we wanted the jurors to see that, to overcome any kind of undercurrents that might be racial in nature, uh, that, that might be deferential simply to the cops because people so believe in the police and don't want to believe that the police would ever do things this way, particularly um, the white citizens think that. I don't, I don't know that many um, black citizens do. Um, it, it had been my own life experience that before this trial and the officers I met at the courthouse, I had had um, hardly any positive interaction with a police officer my entire life. Um, and I certainly had had them. I've been stopped for no reason. Uh, I've been followed around for no reason. You fit the description of somebody I don't fit the description of. Um, and, um, or if not those two things, I'm just talked to in ways that are just gratuitously nasty for no reason at all. And uh, so I'd never had the sense when I saw to protect and, and serve that I've ever felt comforted by being close to that um, uh, at all. And, um, and so uh, I could relate. So, but, but showing uh, those children, having, the, having, the, having them testify, uh, having the jurors actually get to see them, um, we thought was the best kind of retort to the idea that this was a dangerous, threatening mob. You're talking about children, a little girl who's going to the store to get what she called snacks um, is, is kind of what she, and look what she saw on the way to get snacks at the store. Um, so we brought them in and, and other bystanders too, just for being able for the jurors to see who these individuals were, that, uh, that they were to me the best examples of what you'd expect from a real life Good Samaritan um, who just stopped and uh, put themselves at risk to help even a stranger. So you mentioned the um, need to show the humanity and you all relied very heavy, heavily on the, the video. And, you know, many of us have, virtually all of us have seen the video at least once. Many of us have seen it more than once. I know you and your team had to see it many, many times. Can you talk about why you thought it was important to show the jury the video and use the video multiple times trial? And, and also how you were able to deal with seeing George Floyd lose his life so many times in that depiction. Well, I, I'll say the one, one thing that never happened is we never got uh, used to seeing that. It never became a normal uh, thing. That's a backdrop. It was difficult every single time. Uh, and, and I reached a point at some point where if I watched the video, I would turn the sound down, uh, at, at least one aspect of it that, that I didn't have to necessarily hear again and again. So it never was normalized. Uh, you know, for, for the prosecution, you just couldn't. It was just that stark. Um, so so that, was, that was a part of it, uh, was the, the, uh, the video um, itself was never normalized uh, for the trial team. And, and the thinking was that if a picture is worth a thousand words, then a video is worth a thousand pictures. Um, and, and there can be all kinds of arguments about what happened, what people thought, uh, various characterizations of what occurred. But to the extent we can go to the video footage, see it with the jurors, um, then they feel that they get to make their own assessments firsthand. That is the power and force of, frankly, modern technology that gives uh, such powerful video capabilities right in the palm of your hand, uh, that you're not left with officer accounts of what occurred uh, as the only evidence 
or arguments over who thought what. You can see it for yourself. The reason we had to show aspects of the video again and again is because we had to slow parts, certain parts of it down uh, so that you really focus on showing you and explaining what you're really seeing at each segment or motion. If you've never heard of, a, of an anoxic seizure, then you don't know where in the video uh, we see an anoxic seizure taking place. Um, and then we can show you what the doctor told it, uh, the pulmonologist, respiratory physiologist that, that, that I put on, um, that we can show you that here's where the anoxic seizure takes place and here's what it represents when you see this happen uh, in a person in their body. And, uh, and, and there were various aspects of that continuum in particular the nine minutes and 29 seconds that we had to slow down because you thought you saw it, but until we, you slow it down and then show them certain things, maybe you really didn't. Uh, can you see when he's on the ground, for example, not only do they have him in handcuffs, but they are twisting his fingers in ways that are inflicting additional pain, just gratuitous pain. And uh, you don't need to do that to subdue him. It's just inflicting additional pain, um, a technique that's uh, learned and has a purpose, but not when a person's not resisting, when they're when they're subdued on the ground that way. So. We had to slow it down so that uh, we could see the evidence together with the jurors. And uh, and that's a blessing to me of having video footage. Do you have a science background? You know, I, I, I don't. Um, but for 30 years, uh, most of the cases I have been involved in have been at the intersection of, of, of uh, medicine and the law. Mm, so, okay. so I have uh, probably been in trial on every body system there is. In uh, mm. arguments, and uh, that have ranged from, I'll say this just one time: what what is the cause of epithelial hemangial endothelioma? Uh, <laughs> in, <laughs> in, uh, in in one trial in St. Louis in federal court, uh, to um, you know, from probiotic litigation um, that we've argued about, sort of what dose is is efficacious in the body, and uh, and what are the um, what we call the sequela of, of, of taking certain types of supplements. So, so the cases have always involved this and, and most of my litigation over the years, if it's not uh, science or medicine is learning some other technical thing as in mm. how does this particular heart pump work? Um, you know, and how does this product uh, function? And, and so you have to be able to learn it and know it on a detail level to be able to pan the camera back and then talk about it in a macro level with the jurors uh, because they don't necessarily need to understand uh, in any detail what, what is a, a paraganglioma. Um, you know, they just know it's an incidentaloma and uh, as in how many of these have ever been reported as causal in human history. I can tell you that, you don't have to remember paraganglioma uh, necessarily. I didn't talk about um, I mean, uh, for example, uh, you know, we would talk about him dying of, uh, of low oxygen. Uh, we wouldn't talk about hypoxia um, uh, very much. And uh, we stayed away from as much of the scientific jargon, uh, at least I, I did, as we could, because jurors can get it. They get knee bone connected to the ankle bone. And, uh, and just as a, a point of advocacy, uh, as a lawyer, anytime to me you're talking to a jury and you're using some word they don't understand, I mean, you lost him for like the next seven seconds yep. with, with, did I hear that right? What did he say? I don't know. They didn't hear what you said. And then after doing that a few times, it just tuned me out because I don't, I don't know what he's, what he's talking about. 
Um, so so it, it is when I'm uh, talking to classes in child advocacy, I said, absolutely, you need to try your best to understand it on the order of the experts. Now, now that you understand that, now you've got to be able to talk to, pretend, at least for me, I pretend I'm talking to the good folks um, who were around where I grew up in Annapolis, North Carolina, and I'm trying to explain this to them. And uh, they don't want to hear about paraganglioma and all the rest of it, uh, but but they get that the, the, the dude couldn't breathe. Uh, he, had, he had low oxygen. And, uh, and to make it plain, and it's not dumbing it down. Mm. Um, that's not what it is. It's making it understandable for people and not unduly complex, because what are you doing that for as a trial lawyer? Um, and, uh, and it's not the time, frankly, to be trying to impress people how smart you are. Um, well, let, let, let me just say that, you know, that was a masterful direct examination and redirect examination of the uh, medical experts in that case. In fact, it was uh, textbook perfect. And uh, we should use it in classrooms to help uh, students who are in trial practice to understand how to do it. But I was just blown away at your mastery of the uh, those expert witnesses. Well, he was, Dr. Tobin was uh, a phenomenal witness out of the, out of the gate, right? Um, but you have to really work with them uh, to kind of translate it into something that's jury friendly, right? That, that takes quite a bit of work and not just me. I had a number of other lawyers here from our firm who were engaged and involved in, and, uh, and we're putting the time in and working with the Dr. Tobin and how do you make these things plain for the jury? I mean, you can talk about a hypopharynx, for example, but when, you, when he unbuttons his collar and then starts <laughs> putting his hand here for you to be able to feel what the hypopharynx is, at that point, I don't care that you remember hypopharynx or not. Uh, you know what he was referring to because you just experienced it with the experiment yourself. Um, and uh, due to COVID, you know, I had uh, in this conference room sitting kind of behind me over there, this kind of life-sized um, dummy that, that we're going to use to demonstrate certain things during the trial. We couldn't do it because of COVID. Everybody is sort of positioned where they are, you're stationed where you are, there's plexiglass everywhere. So you can't have a moment where the jury can can stand up, come forward, and then sort of stand around to see a demonstration of anything because of COVID. So uh, the, the one thing we could do uh, for jury participation was the experiment with the hypopharynx uh, with, uh, with Dr. Tobin. And, uh, and I think that the, the more the jury can understand the science, uh, the more it becomes familiar to them and hands-on, um, the more they will simply feel that they get to own it, uh, I, that I understand this. So if somebody's coming in, saying something contrary to what I know from my own experience, then they discredit themselves um, in, in sort of making statements by, you know, we saw no evidence of low oxygen. Well, you, you just kind of do this with yourself and you see how little pressure it takes uh, before it starts to obstruct our airflow. And, uh, and so I thought Dr. Tobin was phenomenal that way. And, uh, and we had a, had a good chemistry. So we don't have you for too much longer, but could you talk about your reaction when you heard that the jury had reached a verdict and share your thoughts on the, the jury's verdict and um, what your interaction with Mr. Floyd's family? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it's um, we, we were there in the same building as the courthouse. Uh, so we were uh, in the Hennepin County Prosecutor's Office. It's in the same building. And um, uh, and that was um, 
we're waiting. We're waiting on the verdict. I thought the verdict would be back um, on like Wednesday, and I think it was on Monday or something. But we, 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 the verdict was earlier than we thought, and so we started to hear these rumors. The jury's got a verdict. Well, people say all kinds of things. So that we haven't heard from the court. Um, we first heard there was a verdict on the news, watching the TV upstairs. <laughs> no kidding. We had the court had called us, and so uh, then it was after that we heard from the clerk saying, "Yeah, there's a verdict come down, and it, you know, sit there and wait for the hour." for that jury to come in. Um, and, and so when they read the verdict for us, it was just absolutely incredible, phenomenal. We would have, um, we were shooting for any conviction uh, of uh, Mr. Chauvin, any accountability, uh, given how hard it can be to get a conviction in this case, but to have the jury uh, convict on all three counts was, um, was particularly phenomenal. Um, I was particularly happy for the family. Uh, Philonis Floyd, his brother was in the courtroom, the tears that flowed, the, the joy that was experienced just on the fact of there being accountability, that his brother's life stood for something, uh, that it really mattered, that it wasn't a throwaway life. Um, th that, that was probably my, my greatest uh, joy kind of in that moment was for the Floyd family. Um, and then secondarily, I thought about what it meant for so many outside that courthouse um, that for, for whom the trial was sort of referendums on many questions about justice for a lot of people outside the courthouse. And uh, for me personally, um, I just felt a kind of gratification that, that, that I had heard a call to serve this way and, and that I had answered it. And, and in that, I was satisfied. Well, Attorney Blackwell, we can't thank you enough for taking time out of an incredibly busy schedule to share your thoughts with us, um, your experiences. And as Irv was saying, we had a, a tremendous sense of pride in seeing you on that team, the great work that you did, um, that you continue to do. And you're an inspiration to our law students, to the law professors, to lawyers, and to our entire community. So thank you very much. We appreciate it. No, thank you all very much. I was happy, honored to be on. So again, Attorney Jerry Blackwell, he is the chairman and founding partner at Blackwell Burke, PA. He is a native of Kannapolis, North Carolina, and was one of the lead prosecutors in the Derek Chauvin trial for the murder of George Floyd. We'd also like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any comments or questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.